what 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 are the the deep human traits? Are we are we animals? And then this the you know we we have this. Uh, uh, sophisticated moral life that we've applied on top of our, our deep animalistic roots, or uh, were our ancestors fundamentally, uh, you know, bucolic, uh, you know, loving creatures, and we've transformed our these these uh, this lovely ancestry of ours into this evil modern thing? Well, neither of those is, is true. I'm Jonah Chester. I'm Clay Catlin, and you're listening to Animal Human. This show is a production of IU's College of Arts and Sciences and a proud part of the 2018 semester. Each episode, we talk with a different IU researcher to examine where we as humans belong in the animal kingdom. We also examine the interactions of humans and animals in art, literature, and science. For this, our final episode, Clay discusses our journey as a species from animal to human with Dr. Gene Sept of IU's anthropology department. The class Dr. Sept is teaching for this year's semester, Becoming Human, deals with this topic. Clay and Dr. Sept will be thinking about our animal ancestors in order to get a better understanding of who we are as humans. Professor Sept, thank you so much for joining me today. My pleasure. So my first question for you is, can you tell us a little bit about how your work in anthropology deals with this year's semester theme, Animal Human? Well, the, uh, I'm a, a student of human origins, uh, and I actually do the archaeology of human origins, which means I study the world's oldest garbage, uh, <laughs> which, is, which is interesting. But, but if you're interested in, in human origins, uh, the question comes up, what are the differences between humans and animals? What makes us so different in the world? And the, the record of our past can tell us a lot about that. And we can uh, imagine all sorts of things in the, the modern world, but if you actually turn to the record of the past, you can learn what actually happened. Uh, and turns out we've basically uh, descended from animals, and we're still animals today. We're just distinctive ones, and, and we're quite proud of our uniqueness. But part of uh, what's interesting, I think, is to, to understand what we have in common, not just what the differences are. And, and uh, the best way to do that is to understand ourselves as a, as a species in the world today and to, to sort of go back through time. And uh, my own particular interests uh, relate to uh, food and and right. uh, when we started eating, how our diet has contributed to our uh, situation on the planet today and our uni- uniqueness. And uh, I've also, uh, as, as part of that, we compare ourselves to our closest living relatives, the chimpanzees. And I got interested in one point in, in using uh, the methodology that an archaeologist would use to study you know, ancient human societies to actually use that perspective to understand some aspects of chimpanzee behavior that could inform us about ourselves as well. Uh, so constantly, it's, it's a constant comparison back and forth between us and them, uh, and part of right. that part of that process is is coming to understand how artificial some of the dichotomies we often uh, think of actually are, uh, and to really understand the the continuity between us and all the other animals in the in the animal kingdom, and that's what studying human evolution is all about. So you mentioned that you do work with looking at the diet of early hominids. Mm-hmm. My question is, um, what and how did our ancestors eat? 
Well, it depends how far back you want to go. Uh, that in a sense we're we're descended from primates. Uh, we are primate ourselves, and and if you look at uh, one of the things we have in common with primates is is that we're all basically sort of fussy eaters, and we're all omnivores. We're we're eclectic and selective in what we like to eat. We like to go for the 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 best stuff. Um, we've uh, you know you could say we've inherited a sweet tooth from some of our primate ancestors. That why mess around? With, with sort of foods that are, are uh, dilute when you can actually go for, you know, something that's, that's particularly tasty. And so, for example, we've inherited uh, the ability to have a very discerning uh, taste when it comes to detecting uh, sugars and, and uh, other sorts of foods. So in the, in the past, primates, if you, if you look at primates living today, they uh, eat a, a wide range of, of foods and uh, lots and lots of different kinds of plant foods. And most primates also eat animal foods. And, and uh, so our ancestors undoubtedly came from that uh, sort of realm. And I think if you think about it, Maurice Sendak would probably be delighted to know that we ate wild things, uh, and and uh, and that's that's a fundamental difference uh, between what our ancestors ate and what we eat today, because the the composition of wild things is really different than the the agricultural products that we've bred for so many so many years now, and so one of the distinctions between our diets today and our ancestors' diets in the past is the extent to which we've selected for things that we think are tasty. Uh, so things that are, are sweeter, things that have more uh, sort of marbled fat in the meat and domestic animals compared to wild animals and all sorts of things like that. And then we, we've packaged it all up and, and uh, uh, you know, bred plants and animals to, to satisfy many of our tastes uh, that we have, but also to satisfy our uh, sort of economic needs as a society to produce foods quickly and, and in massive amounts and that sort of thing. Um, but in the past, uh, we, we ate uh, wild foods on a sort of catch-as-catch-can basis. It's, it's uh, a tricky to be able to um, know what's edible and ate a mix of foods, uh, so eclectic omnivores. I mean, one of the one of the interesting questions is at what point did uh, cooking become part of our uh, repertoire? We're so dependent on cooking and processing stuff today, and it's a real a real interesting debate about how early did our ancestors come to grips with you know when when did we start to control fire, for example, and when did we decide to process different sorts of plants and animals uh, and change them chemically right. by by cooking them, uh, and it may have been quite early on. The the evidence suggest that it's, it's a slightly more recent time period than some of the other sorts of things. But So that's one of the debates in human evolution is at what point did we control fire and start to cook our food? That's so interesting because you think of hot foods, cooked food is sort of being the standard for food you're going to eat. Mm -hmm. But that's pretty, I mean, this is, I don't know about this word specifically, but it's almost kind of unnatural for us. Yeah. What, what is a natural diet is a really interesting question. You see it, you know, on cereal boxes and things. You, you pick right. up food these days and it says, all natural. And then you flip it over uh, and uh, start reading the labels. Michael Pollan, uh, you know, the, the journalist would say, you know, read those labels. If you can't understand what the words mean, is that really natural? Uh, and uh, it's, a, it's an interesting 
interesting question. And, and so we've been, you know, you can grow foods. And uh, when I ask my students, well, what's a, what's a natural diet for humans? A lot of them would say, well, you know, lots of, lots of vegetables. And, but they're thinking carrots and, and uh, the celery in the supermarket and, and uh, you know, these, these nice apples and things. And those, those, all those foods that we're so uh, used to today are so different than their, than their wild ancestors, too, that we've, we've manipulated them to, to enhance the qualities that we thought were important. So this is a bit of a speculative question, but if a modern human was to go back and eat like one of our ancestors, and if one of them was to come to the modern day and eat like a modern human, who do you think would have a better time of it? Oh, I, I think, uh, well, our modern diet, depending on who's, whose diet you're eating, uh, isn't necessarily good for you. Uh, and uh, there are lots of, there's, there's a, a whole little subfield that uh, would argue that uh, many of the things that we have done to food, particularly industrial food and Western industrial uh, agricultural practices have people would argue, have really taken a lot of the nutrients out of food and enhanced qualities of foods that aren't necessarily good for us. Mm-hmm. And uh, if you can track some of the metabolic uh, syndrome is, is one, one thing that people talk about, that you know, to what extent do our contemporary foods promote, or at least our, our willingness to eat so much of our contemporary foods, to what extent does that promote things like diabetes and cancer and all those sorts of things? And uh, whereas if you look at wild foods, uh, if if you or I were to go back and eat an ancestral diet, well, um, it wouldn't be that different from eating a wild food diet today. Uh, it would have a lot more fiber. Things wouldn't taste nearly as sweet. Uh, you'd have um, mostly uh, plant foods, berries, different kinds of um, you know chewy stalks and vegetables and things like that. Uh, and maybe a little bit of meat or a little bit of fish, depending on where you're going. But probably just a small amount. It would have been um, something probably quite tempting to most to most of our ancient ancestors, a little bit of little bit of meat, but they would have probably had it quite rarely. And uh, if you look today at the advocates of like the paleo diet, yes, uh, exactly. a lot of those, uh, and this, this gets back to the theme of, of uh, human animal too. Um, it's like, the, they're all about red meat uh, and uh, almost, you know, you have to eat lots and lots of meat in addition to the plants. And, and that's probably really an exaggeration that, that this notion that we're, we've been omnivores for a very long time, but eating a little bit of meat uh, is really different from eating the kind of, you know, every mouthful of, you know, right, of cause, meat. Because red meat back then has got to be one of the hardest things to get. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, or you you can snag a, a little animal, or you can grab some some eggs out of a bird's nest, or you can, uh, you know, maybe maybe uh, get a fish or something, or or scavenge a little That's bit from from scavenge. some other animals' kill, and and all those sorts of things. People will still scavenge today, given an opportunity. The range of foods isn't that fundamentally different, but uh, we've transformed those foods in a way to make them probably they would have been indis. You know, hard for a, one of our ancestors potentially to recognize. Now they might have really enjoyed. They might really enjoy it as well. I mean, you know, you you take some of these fast food uh, concoctions, and they're they're put together in a way that you know we we love the fats and in, in foods that carry the flavors, and and so we love the taste of fatty, salty, sweet, and we've inherited those from from our ancestors. Those those tastes and those right. those those that enjoyment. Who knows if you handed a you know a fast food burger to to one of our ancestors, they might have been, it would have been kind of weird. I mean, right. what what do you do with this? What is this? 
fluffy bread thing. I mean, what is that really? Um, but the the meat and and the odd slice of tomato and some lettuce and things those would have been unusual, and maybe they would have turned their nose up at it because uh, if you're if you're if you want to make a living off of wild foods, you have to be a little wary and and uh, taste something before you actually eat it because it might be poisonous. I mean, right. so so the the fear of the of the novelty of a food might have put an ancestor off in much the same way as if you or I went out to eat wild things and and you, you pick a berry and it would taste mostly dry and it's mostly seed and you sort of spit it out and it just doesn't taste very mm-hmm. good but that doesn't mean there isn't a little bit of nutrition in there you just have to eat enough of them to, to get yeah. it interesting so your upcoming class becoming human is part of semester 2018 and deals with the scientific quest for human origin mm-hmm. what specific aspects of primate anatomy or behavior that shed light on our own journeys as humans are you most excited to discuss with your class well it's it's interesting because if you like if you look at the the poster for my class it's a you know a, a picture of a, a human face juxtaposed next to a chimpanzee face and and that's typically uh, something that students used to think about when you say, well, you know, what's our relationship to humans? That's our closest living uh, relative. And people, a lot of students would just focus on the physical differences because there's a lot of it. And students used to be unaware of of the kind of uh, our genetic relationship to uh, other animals and things. But now uh, students are really, they they grow up knowing about genetics and doing DNA testing and things like that. Um, so, So those are the sorts of things that students typically come to the class being aware of, but uh, one of the things I, I really get excited about is introducing them to the uh, sort of complexities uh, and uh, subtleties of, of primate intelligence and social awareness. Um, that uh, particularly now we've all got these little uh, devices uh, that we use to maintain our social networks. Um, so students are, are really are think that they're very familiar with social networks and, and, you know, making friends and doing all this sort of stuff. But it probably hasn't occurred to most of them that that's such a fundamentally primate characteristic of us. Uh, that's something right. we really share uh, with all our primate relatives. Now, the odd, uh, you know, the average chimpanzee or whatever doesn't have a little, you know, an app they can use to connect. But in many ways, they they live and breathe for the social uh, networks that they're embedded in. And uh, to a great extent, uh, the primate mind uh, seems to be very well adapted to remember social relationships and to to navigate uh, the sort of social challenges of uh, growing up in a complex primate society. And that's very much something that, that we have to do, too. And it's something that really resonates with, with students now is they the, the complexities of their social relationships. We've... we've um, altered them in the way that we now have these technological things that can can be proxies for real social relationships. I mean, it's, it's always amazing when, when you see people walking down the street and they're walking with friends, but are they talking to their friends? No, they're, they're looking at their little device. Um, so we've, we've sort of altered that, maybe sort of the way we've changed food through domestication as well. I don't know. But uh, it's fun to, to introduce students to how primates think in some ways are the best ways we can sort of uh, get a sense of how primates think and how they communicate and how they how they navigate their social worlds and I think that's often a surprise for students so that's yeah. that's something fun it's it's the behavior much more than you know how hairy are you or, or you know do you you know what are you how long are your legs or you know that sort of thing uh, in terms of comparing us uh, in the um, with our with our primate relatives so that's something I really enjoy uh, luring students into and and they 
seem to like it as well. That's really interesting. So it's almost like we can't, through all of our progress, we can't shake our primate need to be social. Yeah. That's really fascinating. Yeah. What is one sort of common misconception that you find usually otherwise informed people have about our ancestors or about our journey as a species? Well, the, the, there, there are a lot of misconceptions. For example, this, this notion of human difference uh, and superiority uh, and the emphasizing the distinctions and all of that, that, that um, often I find that, uh, that people will think that uh, looking around the world today uh, at all the all the people on the planet, that they'll see you know the the amazing uh, sort of uh, richness and, and variety of, of of humans on the planet today, and assume that if they know something about evolution, they'll assume that well all that all those are are um, biological differences, and and that you know things superficial things like skin color or the shape of your ear or something like that that those somehow uh, represent fundamental differences are around the planet, uh, and that these differences have have accumulated through time, and uh, that they emphasize these biological differences and and uh, will use those biological differences to justify their own opinions. But in fact, um, if you if you look around the world today, what distinguishes people uh, is our, our cultural differences, things we've learned and taught ourselves through time. And biologically, other than a few simple superficial sorts of traits, we're uh, practically identical under the skin. The, the, the human species is so individual to individual. We're, we're so much more similar to each other than a chimpanzee is to uh, another chimpanzee, for example. That we're, really? we're, we're very, very uh, uh, similar. We have very little variety as a species that our, our uh, differences are not biological differences. Our differences are uh, cultural differences. And uh, in some cases, there are a few biological traits that have evolved in the context of culture that uh, we've become adapted to different sorts of things. But uh, fundamentally, as a species, uh, we like to emphasize differences. But in fact, I like to, I think similarity is the, is the, the big uh, lesson that we can learn out of evolution. And so I, I think people often have a misconception that, that we're all so different from each other when in fact we're, we're fundamentally very, very similar to each other. We sort of got into this already, but I'd like to hear more of your thoughts mm-hmm. about it. Has your work led you to think any differently about our status as humans, which is really a status that we completely created ourselves just to separate ourselves from the animals around us? That always reminds me of a, of a comment that um, uh, I think Jane Goodall uh, made at one point where, where she, she said, well, of all, the, of all the, the primates and all the animals on the planet, Humans are really the only uh, the only animals that understand their and I'm I'm really paraphrasing here, uh, but the only animals that really understand the cruelty that they're inflicting on others, and uh. have a have a, an appreciation for um, what uh, the impact that what they're doing is going to have on on the other individual, uh, and so in, in some ways the studying the our relationship to other animals in a in an evolutionary sense. It, it really, it always uh, gives me a sense of sort of humility uh, and the idea that, well, for all the, the differences and all the human achievements that we've, uh, you know, can claim on the planet, that uh, we're, if anything, we're known for man's inhumanity to man at this point. So we can do just amazing, amazing things, and yet uh, we choose to do, in some cases, awful things to each other and to other animals and to, to you know, you name it for 
a myriad of reasons, and we can always we always find a justification for it, right? Um, but so in some ways, it, it's it's sort of the the big picture. You really step back and you, and you think, well, we we are animals, uh, and uh, we can you know do amazing technological things uh, and amazing you know philosophical things and and you know literature and you name it. Uh, we're amazingly talented, creative creatures, but we we choose. Uh, what we do with our with our uh, mental and emotional abilities, and and so often we seem to make the what I think are the wrong choices. So, so I, which is it's sort of a that's a, a strange. Uh, uh, thing to to think of when you're thinking about the archaeology and evolution of humans, but but ultimately I, I come away thinking about how precarious our lives are, uh, and if you study uh, our past, you realize how how final extinction is. There's no going back. There are lots and lots of of other species that that were very similar to us that you know branched off from our from our our, our family tree, and you know had a go of it and ultimately didn't survive. Well, we we've survived so far, um, but there are no guarantees, and and we're not we're not uh, we we may be unusual, but we're not special, uh, <laughs> and in the sense that that uh, you know we we better we better be careful with what we've wrought, and and um, you know we, there's a there's a precariousness uh, to our lives that we we have the ability to destroy things so easily that that uh, we you know need to to use our our big brains wisely, I think. And, and uh, so it reminds me of that. Right. So we need to be sort of mindful of the status we've given ourselves. Yeah. It's kind of a downer, really. <laughs> kind of a downer. Well, it is kind of a downer, but it is also like, like you said, there, there's there's a way out of it, I guess you could say, or at least a, a better oh, sure. option. Oh, we, we've achieved so much. So popular culture sees our, our hominid ancestors, even Neanderthals who aren't, I guess you'd say, that far off in the grand scheme of things. As sort of we share their genes, right? Very animal-like, you know, grunting, hitting rocks together, things like that. Mm. But do you feel that it is fair of us as humans to sort of mark this difference between our ancestors and ourselves as being a difference between humans and animals? Sure, and there's nothing wrong with that. the The stereotypes of Neanderthals. You mentioned Neanderthals. Of uh, a colleague has said, we we. Every generation of scientists gets the Neanderthals uh, we deserve. So, in a sense, sci- scientific interpretations of how human-like were Neanderthals, uh, how human were they, um, has has varied through time. Uh, and at, at points in time, they've been uh, sort of uh, stereotyped as, as brutes, uh, you know, just as bad as, as those brute-like uh, animals that we think are so right. unhuman. You, you would call um, somebody a Neanderthal. If they yeah, exactly. It's, it's, a, it's an, offensive, an offensive thing. Well, that not only doesn't do justice to the Neanderthals, it doesn't do justice to uh, animals that you're comparing them to. I mean, so in a sense, what it does is it, it creates this false dichotomy of difference that, that uh, gives us a sense of oh we're we're superior and and you know we survive for a reason and and you know all all of that that it helps us it puffs us up it helps us feel smug uh, but it may not be real uh, and other other folks have looked at uh, the sort of remnants of Neanderthal culture and said you know that they, they were very sophisticated they 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 lived for uh, you know hundreds of thousands of years uh, they they you know we just we don't have the evidence uh, and tools available yet to fully appreciate what their lives were like they were 
different in some respects. But if you met one on a subway, would you have recognized them as, you know, uh, as human or not? Um, could they carry a tune? Um, there was a, a, a wonderful uh, film years ago uh, called Iceman, uh, and it was about um, some scientists who found a, a, a body of a Neanderthal frozen up somewhere yeah. in the Arctic, and then they, they thawed him out, and he came back to life, and then there was this whole debate about, well, what to do? Should we, should we kill him and dissect him uh, to learn more about him scientifically, or should we keep him in a, in a zoo uh, so that we could study him, or what do we do? And I think ultimately the, the hero of the film, the scientist, uh, lets him go free. But anyway, but so, so it's an it's a interesting film. But one of my favorite scenes in the film is, is it portrays this, this uh, thawed Neanderthal as humming. Uh, and it, and it, it portrays some of his dreams. He's remembering his, right. his, you know, his, his family members and things like that. And the, those are the questions that, that we just we don't know. Part of it is you, you know, to how do how can we understand our ancestors on their own terms, yes. as opposed to always looking at ourselves in the mirror and saying, "Well, we're better, uh, we're different, we're we're shinier," uh, you know, whatever whatever it is. And this is it's one of the challenges of of evolutionary science, in a sense, uh, for studying human evolution. You want to be able to go back and and understand the lives of these creatures, um, not. Were they halfway houses to becoming human? But what were their lives like? Uh, and to do justice to them, being being fair to uh, our ancestors and comparing them to animals. I mean, maybe to, to get back to the, the animal-human theme, one of the things I, I try to... Uh, help students with by the by the end of the semester a lot of students come in uh, to a class like this thinking that that uh, it's an insult to be called a neanderthal or a gorilla mm -hmm. or uh, or you know you your mother's an ape you know that sort of stuff and thinking that's insulting what i hope is that by the end of a semester that uh, they're they're no longer embarrassed uh, to think of themselves as as closely related to uh, chimpanzees or gorillas that they've learned enough about them uh, to appreciate the complexities of their lives. And the same thing with our, with our uh, sort of uh, close cousins in time, uh, the, the Neanderthals or, yeah. or the, you know, this, this long trajectory of, of humans uh, and our ancestors through time. It just, you know, just because they weren't us, does that mean they, they didn't lead fascinating lives? And it's almost like, and this is just a final point to end on, it's almost like we use this idea of our ancestors, like the Neanderthal, as a way to sort of exercise ourselves from the darker, more animal-seeming parts of ourselves, you know, hitting each other in the heads with clubs, you know, mm -hmm. but also the part, of, the more hopeful parts of ourselves that wants us to be part of this sort of tradition of sophistication and intelligence, the Neanderthal dreaming mm -hmm. or humming a tune. Mm -hmm. So it's sort of, it's completely out of the Neanderthal's control at this point, but we use them to try to understand ourselves. Absolutely, and, and it's, you know, do we... What 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 are the the deep human traits? Are we are we animals? And then this the you know we we have this uh, uh, sophisticated moral life that we've applied on top of our our deep animalistic roots, or uh, were our ancestors fundamentally uh, you know bucolic uh, you know loving creatures, and we've transformed our these these uh, this lovely ancestry of ours into this evil modern thing? Well, neither of those is is true, yes. uh, and you know these are but but this this idea of sort of you know distilling humanity into these kind of simplistic.
basic dichotomous uh, ideas is something we 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 love to categorize of course. Uh, much more than than chimps do, as far as anybody can tell. And and uh, you know maybe maybe we need to think of instead of putting boundaries on things and and you know, separating things into different categories and, and, and slicing and dicing the world up. If we think about uh, looking for similarities and continuities, uh, it's, uh, you can, sometimes you can learn a lot more that way, at least. Whether or not you, at the end of the day, you, you have a better sense of yourself or not, I don't know. Great. Well, thanks so much for coming on. This has been a lot of fun. Well, thank you for the opportunity. This show has been a project of the Indiana University College of Arts and Sciences semester. Thank you to our guest for this episode, Dr. Sept, for taking time out of her day to speak with me. Editing, hosting, and mixing for this episode was provided by Clay. This is our final episode, but if you're interested in more stories and interviews with IU faculty like the ones we did this year, feel free to check out both the 2016 and 2017 Themester podcasts on SoundCloud and at themester.indiana.edu. And even though we say it every episode, one more thanks to all of the fantastic IU faculty and researchers who sat down with us this year. Nearly all of them are teaching a class or have some kind of programming for the Themester. You can check those out and learn more on the Themester website. That's themester.indiana.edu. And one last time, I'm Clay Catlin. And I'm Jonah Chester. Thanks so much for listening. Our intro song is Night Owl by Broke for Free. Our outro song is Warm Up Suit, also by Broke for Free. Both of those were accessed and used courtesy of a Creative Commons attribution license via the Free Music Archive.